0: I don't know if you know of this indicator that exists of who's going to win the general election in November. It's called the beer test. Have you ever heard of this? The beer test is basically a test of likability. And the person who wins or the candidate who wins the beer test is the candidate that the most people would like to sit down with for uh, a cup of coffee or or a cold one. And who among the candidates would you most like to have a conversation, would you feel the most comfortable sitting down with? And over the years, this has been one of the most reliable tests as to who wins the presidential election, who wins the beer test. So it first became a really big deal uh, back when, I don't know if some of you remember this, not George Bush, Herbert Walker, or whatever, W, was running against John Kerry. And John Kerry was known as the candidate who was probably the most intelligent. Um, The most prepared in many ways, but also perceived as a total snob, right? So that was one end of the spectrum. Then you had George W. Bush, who was considered less intelligent and also uh, much more likable. And so George Bush won the beer test and also won the election. Now, the funny thing is, is that George Bush and John Kerry come from very similar backgrounds, They were both born into very wealthy families. They both were born with the silver spoon in their mouth. They both went to Yale University. Yet one was considered relatable, and one was considered unrelatable. So you might be wondering, who wins the beer test this year? Any any guesses? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this is a Bernie crowd. Actually, and th- this, might not, this might surprise you, nobody wins the beer test this year. Nobody. There's not a single candidate in the final four. I, went, I did research. I was like, okay, who wins the beer test this year? And every one of the candidates, Cruz, Bernie, Trump, Hillary, they all like miss on some major level of, of what it means to be relatable. So I went to another source. All right, well, we have to test this beer test theory a little bit. So I thought about, all right, who are the people in the world uh, that are the most relatable, that we most want to have a beer with? So I I did some research online, and I found out uh, that April 7th, apparently, uh, is National Beer Day. It celebrates the end of Prohibition every year. And so all of these polls come out, who would you most like to have a cold one with? And so I want to see, who do you think of celebrities, because it's going to be people that everyone knows, uh, would be at the top of the list of who would you most like to have a drink with? Anyone? Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Who else? Paul Paul McCartney. Wow. Okay. Bono. Bono. Anybody else? Now, remember the criteria to win the beer test is to be someone that you would feel comfortable sitting down with. Not someone that you're impressed with, necessarily, but someone that will put you at ease. All right, well, there are two winners, one for men and one for women. Uh, the winner of, what, you want to say one? George Clooney. See, Clooney's a guy, we'd all like to have a cup of coffee probably with Clooney, but he's also kind of like up in the stratosphere in terms of coolness and swabness. So that kind of... That kind of, like, uh, intimidates some people. So Clooney did not make any of the lists I saw. But this guy won uh, most like to have a beer with, and it was Bill Murray. Who said Bill Murray? Someone likes to Bill Murray. And uh, any guesses on who won a woman most like to have a beer with? Anyone? I Tina Fey. Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. She intimidates the heck out of me. But I would love to have a drink with her. Anyone else? All right. Well, here's the winner. Jennifer Lawrence. I think it has something to do with when you win the biggest award of your life and you trip up the stairs, you know, and you laugh about it, right? So you think, this is someone I could sit down with and we could actually have a real conversation. I saw other polls and in that poll, actually, Tina Fey did win. So someone, whoever said Tina Fey, you're right, there's another uh, poll by another organization. Tina Fey won, barely uging out Jimmy Fallon. So there's something about people who aren't afraid to make fun of themselves, who don't take themselves too seriously. They're relatable. Um, and that's sort of something that's kind of lacking in our political candidates the, this year. But I also think it's something that's really important in our lives. We're in week three of a series where we're focusing on how we can share our whole lives with people. And our quest, really, is to be able to develop deep relationships where we're known and we know each other. Because as I found out uh, with some of the research that I did, just informal interviews I did over the summer, uh, almost... I talked to 11 people in a row who all had this deep desire for community, and every single one of them said they had no sense of community in their lives. It's just a random sampling of people in our neighborhood. And so how can we have these types of relationships? And one of the things I'm suggesting in this series is that one of the key elements of that is to be able to share our whole selves. We've talked a lot about how that sounds easy, but when it comes to, for example, the area of faith in our lives, it's, it's difficult these days to share that part of our lives. So we kind of cut it off. Maybe we edit it out. And as a result, I think we lose. Everyone loses. Everyone in this room, everyone in the community that we know. Because whenever you shut off an area of your life, there's a level of relationship you can't get because you're closed off. And so one of the things I found is really helpful in terms of being able to share that part of our lives is basically as people being people who can pass the beer test, who people want to talk to, Um, who we want to be around, uh, where it's comfortable, where they don't display some of the things that sort of knock... You know, Hillary, lover, hater, I'm not... The thing that knocks her out of the beer test is that she's uh, often considered... um, I wrote it in here. So it's not my opinion. I'm not saying it's my opinion. Um, But ingenuine is the thing. With Trump, it's the arrogance that he's perceived to have Trump fans. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. I just read the articles, all right? And so Trump is often considered to be an arrogant person. Hillary is often considered to be saying what she wants, you think she wants you to say. And so people don't want to sit down with people who are going to be disingenuous. They don't want to sit down with people who are going to be arrogant, although they might vote for them, right? But who would you like to get to know? Who would you like to share yourself with? Who is it safe to be around? It's not those types of people, whether it's a fair judgment of our political candidates or not. So today, we're going to look at how we can be people that are relatable, approachable, and how we can surround ourselves with those kinds of people. So we're going to look at the story from John chapter 9. This is a long one. It's so long, it's not even in your bulletin. Or is it? No, it's that long, okay? And I tried to edit it. You know, I always want to edit the Bible. You know, that's what I do. But that was a joke. Um... So let me read this to you and just get comfortable, kick back. It's a great story. This is John chapter 9, the whole thing. As he went along, this, this is Jesus. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. "'Night is coming when no one can work. "'While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world.' "'And after saying this, he spit on the ground, "'made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. "'Go,' he told him, "'wash in the pool of Siloam.' "'So the man went and washed and came home seeing. "'His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, "'Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg?' And "'Some claimed that he was, and others said, "'No, it only looks like him. "'But he himself insisted, "'I'm the man,' How then were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. And then I did, I washed, and I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. The Pharisees, if you don't know, they're like this really religious group. They're really serious about the Bible. They study it, and they've really got it down uh, to a science. And They're very passionate about their faith. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened the man replied he's a prophet they still did not believe it, uh, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents is this your son they asked is this the one you say was born blind how is it that he can now see we know he's our son the parents answered and we know he was born blind but how he can see now or who opened his eyes we don't know ask him he's of age he will speak for himself His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. that was why his parents said, He's of age, ask him. The second time, they summoned the man who'd been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We all know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. It's a good story, right? It's worth 41 verses, I think. Glad no one edited it. So in this passage, besides Jesus... All right, that's not fair. Jesus off to the side. But in this passage, besides Jesus, who would you like to meet for a cup of coffee or for a beer? Now think about it for a second. Now I'm going to venture a guess. It's probably not going to be the Pharisees. They don't come across so well, right? They're very confident, but they also seem to be total jerks. They don't really listen to anyone, and they certainly have an agenda. They already know what they think before they meet this guy, and so probably not them, right? Okay. So another big group in this story, they don't get a lot of play, but is the disciples, the people who are already following Jesus. Now, I think if you heard more than just this story, you might think, oh, they'd be interesting to get a cup of coffee with. But if you just look at this story and all we had was this, you probably wouldn't want to meet up with them either. They meet this guy, he's blind, and they don't think anything about helping him. All they think about is, ah, whose fault is it? that this guy's blind, and so they're kind of judgy. And they're not very compassionate people. Those aren't very relatable people that you typically want to sit down and hang out with, right? So I think that leaves us with the man who's born blind. Would you agree? He's probably the guy that all of us or most of us would most likely like to sit down with. He would pass the beer test, if you will. Um, He seems to have a bit of a sense of humor. Uh, He's got a great story to tell. He seems approachable. So this is our guy. This is the guy we're going to look at today to see what we can learn about, about how we can share our lives with folks, with each other, in a way that's approachable, that makes us want to hear more, that makes us want to dive in more. And I'll confess, I've read ahead a little bit, and I'll tell you that I think that what makes this healed man so remarkable or so relatable, actually, is that he displays some humility. That's what you get with him. And this, I think, is what makes all the difference. You can see that in a few ways. First, I think you can see that it's important to know your limitations. Now, there's this large, overarching theme in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it. I'm sure you did. It's blindness, right? So there's this man who's born blind, and he's healed. But more than that, I think there's this big question that's posed to everyone in the story, and to us as we read it, is what is blindness? And specifically, what's spiritual blindness? And all the questions seem to be spiritual. The questions like, who sinned? Um, is Jesus a sinner? What does the law say about working on the Sabbath? Who's the Son of Man? These are big theological ideas which all together push the reader to ask the question that the Pharisees ask at the end, which is, what? Am, am I blind too? And it's a fair question because if you look at this story, the people that you would expect to know the answers, the people who say they're the people of Moses who have studied the Bible really miss the boat, right? In, in a horrible, horrible way. But at the same time, you know, when you see that in a story, you think, all right, well, the people who are supposed to know what's up don't. Then you look and you look at the people who Aren't supposed to know, right? The unexpected sources. And a lot of times in the stories of the Bible, it's the unexpected person that makes the biggest difference. If you read the story of the unexpected person, he is the man who's healed and he gets some cool things, right? But he also misses some things. So notice when he's being quizzed, he says, nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing, right? And his courage, I think, is really inspiring. And what he says isn't all wrong, but it's not all right either. So if you keep reading the story of Jesus, you'll find at one point where he says that specifically certain people will prophesy, drive out demons, and perform miracles in his name, but that at the end, Jesus will say, I never knew you. God's grace like, hits people all the time through any source. But just because something good is happening doesn't mean someone has God's stamp of approval on everything in their life or everything they're doing. And so he's right. It's a good sign that God's at work if miracles are happening, yeah? But it doesn't mean that everything in that person's life is authenticated as awesome. And what we see here is actually a a bigger theological idea that's known as the finitude of humanity, the limitations of us. I think Jesus summarizes it really well in verse 41. He says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In this passage, nobody sees clearly. That's what the whole passage is really about. And the thing that's so encouraging about our our guy that we want to hang out with in this passage is that he's the one person who's not afraid to say the phrase, I don't know. So at least twice in this passage, he says, I don't know. He doesn't claim to understand everything. And saying, I don't know, in terms of having the types of relationships we're talking about, maybe just as important as what you do know. If we wanna have relationships where we can share our whole lives, this is important. If we wanna build a relationship with anyone, maybe the one thing you don't need to be is an expert. Now, if there's anybody in this room or any group of people who are typically supposed to be experts, I think it's probably pastors, right? Now, I don't know how much experience everyone in the room has with churches, but in the churches I grew up in, there was a sense that the pastor was the expert. And it was the pastor's job to have the wisdom, the insight to tell you what to do, right? Anyone relating with me at all? That's a lot of pressure. I remember when um, Beck and I first founded this church uh, back in 2004. uh, I was 28, 41 now. I was 28 then. And all of a sudden, I was meeting with people from all different backgrounds, all different age groups, all different experience levels, and having conversations with them about their lives, presumably, what they should do (laughs) at 28 years old. It was uh, overwhelming. I remember one time I met with this guy, some of you know him, his name was Seth. Seth was working at a community development center in West Philadelphia, Southwest Philly, actually. And uh, we were having a conversation about community development. And one of the things that's important to our church is to be involved in community development. It's essential to our mission. But who do you think knew more about community development, me or Seth? It wasn't close. And I remember after that conversation, I was so maybe even depressed coming out of it like, what do I, I was just thinking, what do I have to offer this guy? You know, a couple weeks later, I was at this workshop that focused on coaching. And one of the key ideas of coaching is that to be a coach, the last thing you really need to be is an expert. That might sound counterintuitive, but what coaches do is they ask questions and they listen. And they sort of summarize what you say, then they ask more questions and they listen they point out things and basically the job of a coach is to help the person understand what it is that they need to do but the person that they're coaching makes the discoveries you can be a coach in this sense and coach somebody on anything because you don't have to be an expert on anything the thought is that god is working in that person's life and if you can help them discover what he's doing you can help set them off on that course you want to be a good friend probably the last thing you need to be is an expert on just about anything. If you can ask good questions and listen and encourage what you see happening in someone's life, as they tell you their story, if you can ask some great questions and help them see what God is doing, man, that you are on the road to like a really amazing relationship. Not perfect. But that's where depth can be built. No experts needed. And knowing all the answers actually isn't very helpful. But another thing is, and that's this, and that's it's helpful to be growing, or at least trying to grow. You know, that's one of the things about the healed man in this story. He's just constantly trying to figure it out, isn't he? He never thinks he's there in verse 11, just, you can look at just his interactions with Jesus. In verse 11, he just barely knows Jesus' name, right? He, he doesn't know really what happened. This guy that I'm told is named Jesus spit on the ground and slapped it in my eyes. And then I went away. In verse 17, something else has happened. And he, at that point, he declares that Jesus is a prophet, Which I think is true. Maybe not the whole story, but a big part of it, right? In verse 33, he affirms that Jesus actually came from God. And then in verse 38, he embraces that Jesus is the Son of Man. He actually worships him. Like all of these, it's a a process for him. In the middle of his I don't knows are coming lots of discoveries. You know, it's so much more compelling to be going somewhere than it is to have arrived. I'd much rather talk to someone who's still figuring things out and making discoveries than someone who considers themselves a master. Think about it this way. If you've mastered something, if there's a problem, whose fault is it? Someone else's, right? Because you're the master. And where do you go from there? You have to blame someone. Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? In this passage, the spiritual blindness that we see here, there's this underlying underlying foundational perspective of all of these people who think that they figured it out. And what's the first thing then they jump to? Judging the people around them. Whose fault is it? Sometimes I think it's helpful to remember this. The problem is yours. Now, I'm not saying that every problem in the world is because of you. <laughs> I'm not, that's not what I mean. But what I'm saying is that it's more helpful to focus on your own areas of growth than it is to focus on other people's shortcomings. Jesus had a very famous saying about this. He said, it's better to take the plank out of your own eye before you go and try and get the speck of sawdust out of someone else's. Where you're trying to grow, where you're being stretched, what you may be learning. This is what's compelling to other people. How you're growing, what you're in the middle of, what you have learned along the way, but what you're still learning. And this is what builds some vulnerability and trust into your relationships. And this is where other people actually may be able to help you as well. You know, I, what I do is... I, As I was preparing this, I couldn't help but think about the sermon series we just finished. If you haven't heard it, it's worth going online and listening. We heard from four people in our church, and the topic was the difference that Jesus makes. And in each sermon, uh, the person was very much on the way to somewhere, but very much had not arrived. So we heard stories about anxiety. We heard stories about depression. We heard stories about family conflict. We heard stories about being marginalized. And they were powerful talks, weren't they? And I heard so many. uh, In fact, maybe this isn't good for my ego. I I can go online. I can see which sermons have been listened to the most. (laughs) Those sermons are kicking my sermons' butts. (laughs) I mean, you know, if I had like 50 or 60 listens, I'm like, yeah, I must have been hot that day. It was working, (laughs) right? Some of these talks are like up over 100 listens because they're real stories about people on a journey, growing, honest about their shortcomings. It's much more compelling to be going somewhere than to have arrived. And your relationships will benefit. It's not that you can't have anything to share and that advice is ever all wrong. No. But in general, going somewhere. You can go somewhere together. You've already arrived. Who's going to go with you? So your story, whatever it is, if it's a story of growth, if you're still learning, it's compelling. And speaking of compelling, the most compelling thing, actually, is to simply tell your story. Simply tell your story. You know, if our friend who's just been given a sight back did one thing in this passage, it's he tells a story over and over (laughs) and over again. And then to the point where he's asked to tell it again, he's like, come on. You heard this. We all know the story, right? Verse 15, it says, Therefore, the Pharisees asked him how I'd receive his sight. He says, I, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. And one thing I like about this no flash, no embellishment. Honestly, if he was preaching a sermon here, I'd be like, Dude, add some detail. <laughs> You've got 30 minutes, <laughs> you know? Uh, set the stage for crying out loud. You know, where were you? What was the weather like? Something. Nothing. He just, what he does is he keeps it simple. He just tells a story. There's no need for all that. It just needs to be honest. And that's all you need too. Like I know it's hard to talk about yourself. Some people, some of you, it's not hard to talk about yourself. <laughs> Fine, great. Good for you. you. You don't have to listen to the rest of this point, but I want you to come back to me later, okay? But for most of us, we don't like to talk about ourselves, at least in a vulnerable way. So to make it easier, it doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be funny. It doesn't have to be profound. It just has to be accurate. No frills. Simple. Honest. You know, I saw this uh, illustrated in a, in a way to me that I thought was really dramatic this week. I was watching a morning news program, probably eating a bowl of cereal, and uh, uh, this feature came up on on this woman who was teaching her around 10, 11-month child uh, to float and breathe in a pool. So i oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, then they had a video clip which she had put online where you watch it happen. And what happens is her little girl just goes, bloop, face first in. And, you know, I have a 10-month-old. And we give him baths. And if he gets anywhere close to getting his nose touching the water, I am like... On it. And so it wasn't just like slowly, it's like boom, head underwater, going down to the bottom. And I'm like freaking out. And of course, the little girl flips over on her back, floats up, and then she's just breathing on top, you know. But I'm thinking, there's no way I'm gonna do that. Are you kidding me? Let my little boy's head go under the water. That's crazy. And I'm thinking, and I can totally understand why she got so many negative comments on the post of this video. Well then another thing happened. So they show this video, blah blah, blah. and then uh, they interview the mom, who's in the video, and it's her daughter. And in like two sentences, like totally unembellished, she just says, "Well, you know, um, I had a, a like a one and a half year old toddler who fell in a pool and drowned, and I decided that was never going to happen to one of my kids again." Oh, simple straightforward. I mean, you hear that story, you may not even agree with her. Maybe you don't want to do that with your child, but you can certainly understand her and where she's coming from. And that's where our, how our stories work. Like, not everyone has to agree with your experience, but if they hear your experience, they can perhaps understand you more. And that's building a Relationship. Your story of growth, of struggle, of finding God in the middle of that is powerful. Even if not everyone will understand your faith, they'll understand you much better. That's real. That's relatable. That's approachable. And especially if you do this one last thing, and that would be to remember it's better not to be the hero. If your story... It's how awesome you are and how you figured it out, and if you can be like me, you can be awesome too. That, that's not a very compelling story. I'm not saying never tell a story of how things worked out for you, but if you're the hero, I mean, you're, all of a sudden you're much less relatable. But if your story was how you were stuck and how your faith or how jesus made the difference well then there's hope for everybody in verse 11 he replied the man they called jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes and he told me to go to siloam and wash so i went and washed and i could see A little later he says jesus put mud on my eyes and i washed and now i see In verse 27, I've told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples, Jesus' disciples too? Our guy in this story is always pointing away from himself to something else. He's pointing Jesus. You know, a big theme for us, because most of us here, we've we've bought into the faith of Jesus and we're trying to follow him, we're trying to do that, is not to edit that out of our stories. We've talked at length, I think, about how... Uh, none of us really loves the pictures of Christians out in popular media today. We don't necessarily think it reflects us or our faith, and so it it shuts us down in this area of our life. But let this guy encourage you, man. That's the best part of the story. That's the difference maker. Everyone has stories of failure. We all have stories, but if you can have a story of something that actually helped you in life, all summer I talked to people, and just like they weren't connected to community. One thing that came up is that people are really uh, looking for something that helps them. And one of the turnoffs that a lot of folks have to spiritual communities, particularly churches, is they feel like churches are just out to build themselves up. And so the goal is to get bigger, (laughs) to have more people. Uh, But who they are, who people are, is secondary or way down the list. It's not that way with Jesus. Jesus wants to help us. He wants to make a practical difference in our lives. And so a story about a real change, something that really made a difference, has a lot of oomph to it. Keep Jesus in the story. If he's in there, don't work him in if he's not. Don't make it up. But if he's in there, just be yourself. Share your whole self. (sighs) Are we awesome or has Jesus been awesome to us? But I will say this, and this is my little teaser for next week. You'll notice that as relatable as a healed man is, not everyone is happy with his story. And so I've spent three weeks saying, hey, share your whole self, share your whole self, put yourself out there, take a risk. So what do you do when people, what people hate about your story is the faith part. The Pharisees didn't like the story at all. Well, that's what we'll talk about next week. So you got to come back. (laughs) But before we do that, I want to do an exercise similar to what we did last week, or the first week, in case you weren't here. Because I think it's helpful. Um, I read an article that talked about Teflon and Velcro. And the point that the article was making, it might have been, actually it was a podcast that I heard. It was an article. I didn't read it at all. I lied. I listened to it. The point was that negative things that happen in our life naturally attach to us like Velcro. Without taking a moment to think about them, they just get right to us. But the report that I heard also said that the positive things that happen in our life slide right off of us, like Teflon, unless we take at least 15 seconds to ponder them. So we're going to take 15 seconds here. And I'm going I'm to time it. But I want you to do, some of you can reflect on the story that you had two weeks ago, but I want you to think about and find one place that you can see in your life where God's been active recently. Not 10 years ago, not five years ago, but recently. It can be small, it can be big. I just want you to reflect on it. And so I'm going to give you a moment right now to picture that thing, okay? Just picture it. Time The clock isn't starting yet. I'm not texting a friend. I'm getting my timer out. All right, do you have something in mind? doesn't have to be fancy. I want you to take 15 seconds and just close your eyes and just try and suck it in. Something that your kid did that made you smile. Something that happened at work. Something on the block. A little breakthrough. Something that you've been trying to get over and you had a moment where you felt like you did. And just reflect. Here we go. All right. That was kind of long, wasn't it? Now, in your life... How many times do you take that long to think about something that made you smile or that you're thankful for? That long. One of the things we need to develop as a community is a way to step back, to take moments in our day and reflect on the positive and good things that are happening to look for what God might be up to. 15 seconds. Because the negative things are going to stick to you but the best things you got to hold on to so what's your story